Welcome to Equinox, where we're striking the balance between the light and the dark. This is episode 10. My name is Joseph Darnell, and I am joined by my good friend, Dr. Robert Carter. Hello, Rob. Hello, Joe. It is a very fine Wednesday. It's so refreshing to be enjoying Georgia in the spring. Actually, we're not recording today. That's not how podcasting works. No, no, no. no. Shows have to be edited, and we record this as close to the release date as possible. We don't want to miss any catastrophic world events, any announcements for new pandemics or anything like that, and but not mention them on the show. Beautiful Saturday afternoon. Yes. And we're thinking about the future when the show is going to come out to your podcast feed. In four days. And it's going to be Earth Day. So it is going to be Earth Day. Happy Earth Day, listeners. April 22nd. Yeah. Uh, it's the 50th yeah. Earth Day. Is it now? See, I thought Earth was older than that. Oh, yeah. It's not like the 50th Earth birthday. Hmm. Is this something that the U.S. Uh, brought about 50 years ago? Yeah, I think it was a U.S. senator who had uh, from Minnesota. Oh, I might get that wrong. But anyway, you were saying. North, North Central State. He went to California and he saw a giant uh, oil spill. And he said, this is terrible. And he started this idea called Earth Day. In 1970. 1970. Wow. So it really is the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. It is. Okay. Kind of a big monumental event for Earth. Yeah. So does that mean that they cleaned up the oil spill, I figure, by now? Yeah, yeah. I think the oil spill is quite taken care of. Good. Okay. Not going to cause another catastrophic event. So how are you doing? I'm doing great. What have you been up to? Well, I've been keeping busy in all this coronavirus uh, lockdown stuff. Every morning, Mm -hmm. I have a phrase that pops in my head, and it's been like two weeks. And the phrase is, redeem the time. Yes. And it's always on my mind. I don't want to waste my time. It's interesting how many of the people I've been listening to say that on other podcasts, that that now they're, they're thinking about their time very differently, and they're trying to use it more wisely. And it's like a huge reset button. Yeah. And they're refreshing how they approach any of their work and their spare time. Yeah. You have to, you have to deliberately focus yourself because if you're free with all your time, that's not a good thing. Mm -mm. It's not for me. I squandered too much. And I said, no, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to be productive and do something different and fun also. It affords us, I mean, I know it's pretty bad, like the lockdown is really affecting people in dramatic ways, but it is affording us opportunities to do things that we don't ordinarily get to. That's right. Like spend time in my wood shop. Yes. Okay. So what have you been up to? Well, I've built myself a couple of beehives. This, this is fantastic news. If, as anyone knows from listening to the last few episodes, we have an episode coming up all about bees. Oh, yes, we do. But a couple episodes ago, we talked about bees. I was talking about bees with your son, and I just got the buzz, and I was like, I, got, I need a beehive. I got to get back into bees again. I just got to tell you, people, see, Rob says, I, I, I got to build a couple of hives, and he's thinking about making one for me as well, and I want him to do this. And it's very interesting, very exciting stuff. I've never done bees, but my son is really itching to do it. Yeah. I think I suggested the idea to him and he just ran with it. Like, yes, this is the thing I've been looking for. And he does, unless he listens to this show, he's not even going to know about it yet. No, he doesn't know. It's going to be a surprise when it shows up, okay. when he sees the hive for the first time. Okay. And it's going to be great. Well, he's going to be also surprised that he has to make his own frames. I'm not putting yeah, yeah, all those yeah. frames no, together he, for him. He is going to thoroughly <laughs> enjoy that. It. I can't wait. That's going to yeah. be a very interesting episode. But... After doing bees before and mm-hmm. trying several different alternative bee styles, I, I went with uh, the first beehives I built, about three or four of them. Um, they're called top bar hives, Kenyan top bar hives sometimes. It's just like a cattle trough. 
and you just lay pieces of wood on the top of it, hmm. and the bees will naturally find their way comb in. on it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, actually, I bought bees and put them in, and they they naturally built comb. But they're really good in Kenya, and we live in Georgia. Oh, okay. And it doesn't get below freezing in Kenya, and it certainly does in Georgia. And my bees just never made it through the winter. Oh. Uh, well, I didn't yeah. realize that bees need to be warm, and they need honey to eat, and they burn honey to stay warm, and they need the right temperature and the right humidity. And, and so I next went to another type. In fact, I built a lot of these for other people and sold them. I made, made some good money on it too. Hmm. But I didn't realize that Georgia says you need to have – a hive with a removable frame. The frame is the what part exactly? where the honey goes and where the where they make their babies. The thing, yeah, that that thing you can pull up and look at. Yeah. Well, a top bar hive doesn't have any frames, oh, and they're nailed down, yeah. so you can't just lift the thing up. Well, some of them nailed down. The next style I went to was a nailed down one. It's called a Warre hive. Some French monk, and they were really cool because I built into each box a glass window. With a sliding piece of wood. That is so nice. you can slide up and you can just yes. look at the bees. It was really cool. That is cool. Again, again, I did fine with them. And one time one colony didn't make it through the winter. And I was walking out there in the springtime to clean it up because you know, I just left it there all winter just being lazy. And I walk up to a buzzing hive full of brand new bees that had just moved in. Oh. I captured a wild swarm. That <laughs> actually happened to me twice. Nice. I just left an old beehive out. Even once in the winter. Well, like in the springtime. Oh, okay. You know, bees are looking around. We need a new place to live. We didn't like our winter quarters. And yeah. they just moved into my beehive. Happened oh, twice. I'm so hoping to do it this time. I'm cheapskate. I built these two hives with this, this new design. It's another, it's a European style design. They're taller than the standard white bee boxes that we're used to. Yeah. The American style. The frames are bigger. And the the idea there, at least in theory, is that by having a bigger frame, the honey that you leave behind for the bees, they'll cluster at the bottom of that frame in the winter and they'll eat their way up all winter long. And if you have a bigger frame, they have more honey to eat. Yeah, of course. And a bigger, a bigger box like that means that there's, it's more controlled temperature and humidity. Mm. And it's also, it's a horizontal hive. Horizontal. Instead of stacking box on top of each other, mm-hmm. it's a long box. So there's boxes frames. side by side. Or yeah, but it's, it's one big, one it's like a box. coffin. It's, you know, it's, a, it's three feet long, foot and a half wide or something like that. Hey, if in, you build general. more of these and sell them, you could brand them as the bee coffins. A bee coffin. I like that. Yeah. No, no, that's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> that's terrible. No. <clears throat> now I'm learning all this online because I, you know, I like doing research online. I like thinking new thoughts and trying new things. I like to experiment. And this is my new, my new bee style experiment. Yeah. Awesome. So you have an, how many different types of hives now you're talking about? This is your third design that you've gone with? This is my third radically different type of beehive. Wow. And awesome. this seems to be solving some of the issues with the older ones. Mm. Specifically, um, this one's insulated. I built a double wall beehive. Fantastic. <laughs> there's going to be so cool. insulation in between the two walls. So they're going to be nice and warm or nice and cool. They'll be I haven't seen it temperature. yet. So I'm really looking forward to this. Wow. <laughs> see we don't have any pets and we've discussed like do we want to give the children an ant an ant farm <laughs> and then it was like no 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 no, that's a terrible idea and going through the different things that we would want to do and when bees came up it like checked off all the boxes got a green light on everything like we could actually do this so it, why aren't we doing this it's just that you know 
Dogs don't generally bite, but bees generally sting. I can handle it. All knowing, right. hey, I, I'm a pretty conscientious guy. Careful. I did a roofing job many years ago, and I wanted a rope. I wanted to be tied down. So there was nothing at risk. Meanwhile, I watched other guys as they were putting on shingles at the very edge of the oh, roof, man. standing with their back to the ground uh, on a pitch with no rope. And I'm like, yo, guys are crazy. Yeah. I would never dream of it. I, I put a roof on my house a couple of houses ago. It was a metal roof. It took me about four months, one winter, because Georgia's great to work outside in the wintertime. Yeah. I was, um, I put a, a shackle at the peak of the roof and I was roped on because on the front of the house, once the metal was down, I couldn't stand on it. Mm. I would slip. I would have slid right off the yeah. two-story yeah. roof. There's no way to stand on it. So I actually had to rappel down my roof and screw 10,000 screws in and then work on the edges. And, and it, it took a long time. Wow. But it was a lot of fun. It is. I do miss doing a little bit of construction and remodeling. And I don't have any power tools. So I could have never done this beehive project on my own. So, Rob, thanks again in advance for this hive opportunity. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks to you, I've learned a ton from looking at the web pages, the documentary I watched with the entire family, learned a lot, and I, I'm just really excited to get started. So let's get to our main topic. We're going to talk about Earth, and, and Rob, you, you, you picked know, it again. I did, but it, it also just was like the perfect timing. Like, you know, talking about Charles Darwin and around his birthday, we didn't actually align those. And I said, we really got to talk about things when they're very much on the nose out of the year. And this was perfect. It's like, of course, we're going to talk about planet Earth. We should talk about it on Earth Day. Yeah, but the funny thing is you said, no, let's talk about the Earth, <laughs> not the environment. That was last week. Yes. And so it took us a few minutes to figure out when we were talking about environmentalism and when we were going to talk about Earth. And yeah, this, this was perfect. Um, so Earth, the rock. We've talked about, about gravity and about Earth orbits and fall, falling to the center of the Earth before. Oh, I remember. That was funny. We, uh, and, you know, if you talk about Isaac Newton, you cannot not talk about gravity. So that was episode one. And so there's going to be a few references to things in passing that would be really good if you as a listener haven't started with episode one. Go back and listen to that one because it's sort of a good prologue for what we're getting into now. Yeah. Yeah, the theory of gravity is very much is going to come into what we're talking about today. So when we say Earth, we're going to talk about the atmosphere, geology, the Earth core. We're going to talk about the biosphere. Um, what do you want to start with? I, actually, I want to spend time talking about the solid lump of stuff we call Earth. Mm -hmm. Most of us know, you know, winds and rain and stuff. That's kind of fun to talk about. And most of us know biology, or at least, you know, you know what a a bee is and a, a kitty cat and an elephant, but almost nobody knows what's under the earth, under the crust. And in fact, I've learned things over the last couple of months that I had no idea were true. It I, is so what? mysterious because we're so used to what we see. This is earth. And then all the, uh, the research about what we can do with um, resources, technology, and exploring space. Like Elon Musk is interested in, in, you know, colonizing Mars. Meanwhile, right here, much closer to home, we don't know what's in the core of the planet Earth, you know, or do we? No, we don't. Okay, well, let me, let me ask you a question. Let me, okay, listeners, this is a question for you too. Because I literally, I just learned this a couple of months ago and I was shocked. What is under the crust of the Earth? 
See, uh, Rob asked me this question a couple of days ago, and I naturally said it's molten lava. Yeah. It's liquid hot metal core stuff. Yeah. But it's, it's not. No. The earth actually is solid. Is it even warm? Like, is oh, yeah, the temperature? Yeah. It's, it's, the rocks are about 80% of their melting temperature. So they're hot rocks, and they'd be glowing red. Because, wow. you know, hot stuff, you know, if you heat up um, steel or, or iron in a blacksmith's furnace, it'll glow, right? But it's not molten. It's hard as a rock. Mm. The earth actually is solid. So what makes it so hot? Why is it generating that kind of heat for, as well as we know, thousands of years? And it had to have been hot at the beginning, and it's still hot now. Well, a couple of reasons. One is adiabatic temperature. In other words, pressure generates temperature. See, I forget that every now and then, you know, pressure cookers. Yeah. So earth is like a pressure cooker for a, a lump of rock inside. Yeah. All that rock pressing down because of gravity. Um, there's Makes a lot of itself heat down hot. There. Yeah. <laughs> but the other is radioactivity. Radioactive. Okay. Wow. We have to be afraid of 5G and radioactive planet earth. Well, the, yeah, the earth is very radioactive. Oh dear. All the, you know, the uranium, plutonium and Californium, not Californium. That doesn't exist in nature. Is but, it any better on Mars? Can we colonize there any sooner? Uh, I don't know. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, very interesting. But no, we don't have to worry about the radioactivity of the Earth because we're shielded by all the other rock. Oh, wow, that's a that's convenient. So the, it is like the outer crust that is actually protecting us from the radioactive material down below? Yeah, but there's not much of that radioactive material, but oh. there's enough to produce a lot of heat. <laughs> like there's, yeah. there's a really cool thing just popped into my mind. Uh, there's a place in Africa where they think the uranium below the Earth went critical. What does that mean? It started radioactively burning like in a nuclear power plant. Ooh. The, the, it was, On its own? There was enough high concentration of uranium that it literally one neutron came out of one uranium and hit another one and two came out of that one and <laughs> four and then eight and then 16 and, and it exponentially increased. And there was actually a nuclear reaction happening in the earth. So theoretically, could a planet under the right condition turn into a star that way is that or no is, is that okay so that's more no, science fiction uh, well to have a star you would need a hydrogen fusing into helium um and releasing the heat yet that you know iron and and cobalt and nickel and uranium things they, they don't okay that's not a star that way. no i mean even if you put a whole bunch of uranium into something the size of the moon uh Hmm, would it go? Would it go nuclear and blow up? Maybe, but it would definitely burn really hot. Wow! Wow, that's a good. I've never even thought of that. I gotta and I gotta do some more googling and more thinking. I don't. I don't even know what would happen. Interesting. Or how long it would burn and how hot it would be? What a cool question. Hmm. So, what is the mass of this hot ball of rock? If I told you the number, it would be completely meaningless. Yeah, to be honest. If I said, you know. Six times 10 to the 24th kilograms. Yeah. What? 10 to the 24th. I mean, if you say something's 2,000 pounds, right? One ton. Yeah, we can kind of appreciate it. Well, that's heavy. You know, it's like a a car. Yeah, Yeah, that's heavy. You you can't, your brain can't. No. No, if I say something's one gram, put a gram in your hand. It's so light that I I can't, yeah. Yeah, so we, we are limited with what we can conceptually I think in terms Get of in our like brain. pounds of weights, like my computer weighs two pounds, my yeah. Bible weighs one, yeah. my cup of coffee weighs... You but know. if I said 15,000 pounds, I might as well say 15 million pounds. <laughs> yeah. Before I say pounds or kilograms, 
And then when it doesn't we, matter. And when we are accounting for the Earth's weight, we, we also include all the material for like vegetation and the animals because that the, is nothing compared to the rest of it. Okay, so you, you so even scre- you could get rid of every yeah thing of, made of carbon and throw it off into space, and the mass of the Earth wouldn't change. It wouldn't even be one percent. Yeah, it wouldn't even be one percent. Mm. Wow. So yeah, like I, I've thought about buildings in uh, the cities. Like the Empire State Building, it's got to be really heavy, but then it's still nothing. Like you wrap up all the weight of New York City, and that's not even 1%, is it? Could you measure the gravity of like the Empire State Building? No, <laughs> not without you. Oh, okay. <laughs> Could the gravity of the Empire State Building be measured? Oh, oh, I don't know. I'm assuming yes. The answer is yes. Yeah. And we could have done it in the 1700s. 1700s. Ah, yes. I want to, I want to talk about a, an experiment. I just learned about this. Cool. In fact, I, I, I floated it by uh, uh, Jonathan Sarfati, my office mate, and he and I have written a lot of things about gravity and uh, geocentrism and flat earth, you know, against geocentrism, against flat earth, and uh, history of science, because we both love the history of science. And I asked him if he had ever heard about it. He said, no, he'd never heard about this. And I was shocked. No way. And so we both read about it. I was like, this is amazing. And now... I'm going to have a hard time pronouncing this. There's yeah, a mountain okay. in Scotland. And so Scottish people, I don't know how to pronounce your word. It's S-C-H-I-E-H-A-L-L-I-O-N. Shehalian. Shehalian. I'm just going to say I'm American. It's Shehalian. Something Shai like that. It's, it's a mountain in the middle of Scotland mm-hmm. that's isolated from other mountains. It would make a great password. It would make a great password, Yes. But Isaac um, Newton knew about it. And someone said, hey, we can measure your gravity using this mountain. He said, no, 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 I don't think we can do it. Isaac Newton just happened to be around. Oh, this well, is Well, he, he's dead by the time they ran the experiment. Oh, okay. But they worked out how to do it. If you have a pendulum and it's not moving, it's just sitting there. Yeah, pendulums are the things that swing. Yeah, and they swing back and forth. But it, if you don't yeah. let it move, what direction is it pointing? Down? Down. Yeah, straight down, right? Straight down to the center. To the center of the earth. But there's there's rock off to your right. Why isn't it going to the right? Oh, yeah, because there's a gravitational force over there. Yeah. It's nothing compared to the center's gravity. Yeah, pull. but there's still rock off to the side. Why isn't it moving to the side? It could. But it's balanced by the rock that's off to the left. Oh. So going sideways, forwards, right. backwards, left and right, right, all that gravity is... Canceling itself. Canceling itself out, but it, yeah. And so there's so only the one result in force, which is straight down. Form. Right. Yeah. What if you had a plumb bob next to a mountain? Uh, well, in theory, I think that it still goes down. Because, but the mountain is very substantial compared to, say, something like my desk That's or right. a car. The mountain is big. Even more substantive than like a skyscraper because those are all empty, hollow yeah. spaces. Yeah, mountains big. If you had a big lonely mountain, we, for example, in here in Georgia, we don't have a lonely mountain, but we do have Stone Mountain, which is pretty solid. Boom! Do you know what Stone Mountain's made of? Granite. Granite. Yeah. Granite is not a heavy rock. Oh, really? Now it's you think rock, right? It I, seems mighty impressive to behold. It does, but if you made a rock that looks like a gallon of milk. Okay. A, a gallon weighs a little more than eight pounds. Yeah, okay. So take a, a, a lump if of rock. carved it out and of carved granite. it to make it look like a gallon of water, a gallon water jug and pick it up. How much do you think that would weigh? A lot more than eight pounds. How much do you think it would weigh? Oh, uh, closer to 80 to be uh, at 20. Oh, really? Yeah. 
But that's granite. That's for granite. You. Granite's about other rocks would be heavier. Two, so it's 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 not even three times as dense as water. Hmm. It's like two and a half, two and, two and three quarters hmm. times the density of water. So it sinks in water. But the rocks of the crust of the earth are not really heavy. And this led to one of the giant mysteries. This led to the discovery or the, the determination the center of the earth must not be made of the same things that are on the surface. Oh. Okay, yeah, I in get the, it. the depths yeah. of the earth, they got to be something thicker, denser than the rocks on the surface. Okay, well, I'm sorry I derailed you about Shahalian. Yeah, how do you pronounce it? Kalyan. I don't know. All you Scottish listeners, all three of you, you're probably <laughs> yeah. throwing rude gestures our way. I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, there's this mountain, and these very astute scientists went there in the 1700s. They published this results in 1774. Something tells me this mountain wasn't made of granite. A bit heavier. No. Really? So it would have been basically like a mountain material that wasn't special for having thicker no. rocks or something. No, no, no. It was, it was, it was the, the loneliest mountain they could find. Okay. That's what, okay. And they went there and they built a flat platform and they took a bunch of star sightings. Star sightings. Yes. I Whole, thought this had to do with the center of the earth. Well, they had to know which way up was. <laughs> okay. And so they did a multiple. I could have helped them with that, but sure. Well, it's not that easy. Oh, they needed it to be mathematically precise. Because if you're next to a mountain and you think your little plumb bob is going to be pulling to the side, you can't look at the plumb bob to figure out which way up is. Oh, right, 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 right. And they already knew that the earth wasn't perfectly round. True. And Mm -hmm. so they had to factor in their latitude, the fact that the earth bulges at the equator and it's a little flatter north and south. They had to calculate that in too. Man, and they're doing this from Scotland. And they had to do it on the other side of the mountain also. Oh, yeah. The north and the south sides of the mountain. And they had to look at their the angle of this plumb bob. Of the two plumb bobs. They moved to the north and did it, and they went to the south and did it. And gotcha. did it twice, the same equipment. And they had to know the angle. But wait a second. We're talking about the earth is really big. Yeah. A mountain is not. No. And again, like we're saying, less than 1% of a difference. Oh, much less. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, so here's what they had to do. First, they had to estimate the volume of the mountain. And they invented something no one had ever done before. They invented something called contour lines. They surveyed the mountain and they made a map that of isn't concentric the one, yeah, that's circles. That's basically what surveyors do, Exactly. Right? We see it yeah. all the time. This is, they invented this during they this did, experiment. Oh, that is so cool. And so by having contour lines, you could think of it like a layer cake. Yeah. This contour is one layer. Maybe it's you know contour lines, maybe they're 10 feet apart, 100 feet apart, whatever it is. Mm. You say, I'm going to estimate the surface area of this layer, multiply times the thickness, Boom. It kind of looks like a 3D printer's like architecture design schematic. Yeah. They actually calculated the volume of a mountain and no one had ever done that before. Wow. This is really cool. Huh. And then they started measuring angles of plumb bobs. But we have to talk about angle measurements. Angle measurements. How many degrees are in a circle? Oh, 360. 360 degrees in a circle. Okay. Mm -hmm. But it didn't move a degree. We, divide, we um, break degrees down into sub-degrees. The first breakdown is called an arc minute. An arc minute is one-sixtieth of a degree. See, it, why is it called a minute? That has a, not a uh, measurement of... It's just okay. the way... To, have you ever heard of a thing called a nautical mile? Uh, yeah, yeah. Nautical miles aren't the same thing as miles. Why not? A nautical <laughs> mile... Is so confusing. It, it is totally confusing. It's like 1.15 miles. It's... One arc minute 
Okay. It's one sixtieth of a degree of the Earth on one of the, at the equator or one of the, you know oh, a full wow. circle around, and just happens to be a little bit bigger than a regular mile. Wow. So that's why we talk about nautical miles or knots is nautical miles per hour. Arc mile. And so we're talking about naval stuff. It's going to actually come into this Scheihalion experiment. Okay. But we have to divide up arc minutes into something smaller. One something s- smaller. One sixtieth <laughs> of an arc minute is about 98 feet, 30 meters. It's an arc second. <laughs> So we're talking about one sixtieth of one sixtieth of one three hundred and sixtieth of a circle. Right. One degree. There's like one point two or one point three million arc seconds in a circle. Okay, I didn't know the terminology, but from time to time I can honestly say I have wondered about such distances when I was watching the second hands on my watch move. Oh yes. Because there's uh sixty degrees. Uh, that you can see for the second hand to go around uh, in a circle. 360 degrees. Three, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 60 seconds. Right. 60, That's right. Yeah. The, the 360 degrees are broken into 60 fractions. Yes. I've actually wondered about this because I've wondered like how much could my eye perceive as the, if it was a analog watch, could I perceive the mo- motion very smoothly between something less than one degree. And you think about this you kind can, of stuff. You because can you're notice a something less than one degree, but you cannot with your eye see an arc second because oh. it's a 1.2 millionth of a circle. That's okay. So I'm assuming this is like, if we were to look at a human hair, it's a, like, we can see a human hair is an arc second, basically thinner than a human hair or would it, it be comparable? On the, depends on the size of the circle. Okay. So if you take the earth as a circle, yeah. an arc second is 98 feet. Okay, good point. Yeah, at the outer edge of the cir- of that circle, yeah. which is planet earth. Yeah. Mm. So a much smaller circle, you would definitely so perceive this. If you had a plumb bob hanging next to a lonely mountain in northern Scotland in 1774, while the British colonies are fighting and starting trying to not be Britain anymore, right? I mean, this is the American Revolution is yes. just starting to get into full swing here. And these guys are on this mountain. How much do you think the plumb bob moved? Uh, I, I I can't. It's proportional to the size of the mountain compared to the size of the earth. Uh, okay, okay. It moved eleven arc seconds. Okay, well that was several several feet. It's like one millionth of a circle. Uh, the earth circle. And so instead of hanging straight down, it was one millionth of the way around a circle to the left. <laughs> oh, wow. And on the north side of the mountain, it went the other direction towards the mountain. Same. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, Isaac Newton's theories were completely validated. Oh, that is so cool. And okay. Now, why are they doing this? Why is this important? Well, if you're here on earth, mass doesn't matter. We can talk about weight. How much does that boat weigh? How much does that building weigh? Right. We don't usually talk about the volume of a boat. No, and we don't talk about the mass of a boat. We don't care. It's just how much it weighs. Yeah. But how about in outer space? You don't weigh anything, do you? (sighs) No, even planet Earth, it's kind of inconsequential, no matter how big it is. Because out in outer space, it's not like weight counts. Yes, but there is mass. Yes. And people are like, I don't get it. What do you mean? Okay, let me, let me, I thought of an illustration here. Imagine that you're inside your spaceship and you're not wearing a space helmet. You're inside your spaceship. Yeah, you'd be floating around. And you decide, well, I have no weight. Therefore, 
I can do an experiment. Watch this. And you, you get up next to a wall and you push off really, really hard with your legs. Right, of course. And you make yourself like a torpedo. Yeah, you're And you run like into Superman. the other wall on the other side of the spaceship with your head. <laughs> Ouch. Okay. You just died. <laughs> okay. Wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait, you have no mass. I mean, sorry, sorry. You have no weight. If you have no weight, why would I die? Well, because of mass. It still takes force for you to eject yourself from that first wall. And right. all that power in your legs, all that energy is now in your inertia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, when you hit the other side with your head, not with your <laughs> legs to spring it, you stop very quickly. Yeah. And Newton told us that F equals MA, force equals mass times acceleration. It's one of the laws of, of science. Well, if you're stopping very abruptly, you have a very high acceleration. <laughs> so the force being transferred to your body is very high. Oh, okay, yes. Because you still have mass. Just because you're floating doesn't right. mean you have zero mass. So uh, this is what, you know, car accidents. Yeah. A car going sideways, you don't care how much it weighs. You care about the How force. fast it stops. So, acceleration along these lines i remember visiting a lighthouse and they talked about be very careful that you're not allowed to be dropping anything off the top of the lighthouse because mm. even if you just drop a penny and it hits somebody in the head it'd be like a bullet by the time it gets to the ground yeah they, they, there's problems with people that like on the empire state building throwing pennies and things like that now the terminal speed of a penny is not a million miles an hour I didn't think so. It wouldn't fall probably even 1,000 miles an hour. A person's terminal velocity is about 120 miles an hour. You know, you're going to die when you hit the ground. Yeah. But a penny's not that big. and I don't even think it's as high as that because it's not much mass. There's a lot of surface area. Mm -hmm. But it's still going to sting bad. It's Mm. not going to bury itself in the concrete. Right, okay. But it could hurt. Yeah. A lot. So you still don't want to jump off of a diving board onto a, uh, a swimming pool and, and do, do a belly, belly flop. flop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, okay, it's not going to kill you, but it's going to hurt. So F equals MA, right? Classic law of science, straight yeah. out of Newton's pen. Brilliant man. Well, we're talking about a plumb bob and a mountain, and this plumb bob is is being being pulled toward that mountain. They know how much the the plumb bob weighed. And they know how much force it would take to pull it sideways. Therefore, they know the force of gravity between the plumb bob and the mountain. And proportionally, once they estimated the mass of the mountain, which is, which is mostly granite. Which was what they weren't really after. And, well, <laughs> yeah, they, they, that's really cool. They got the mass of the mountain, but they couldn't quite calculate the mass of the earth. But they, they because the earth quite. is too small. <laughs> the earth is too small. To make that much gravity... If, if a mountain this big makes this much gravity, an Earth this big would make, oh, there was a problem. And the, the problem was figured out in the next experiment. But the, the problem was that the center of the Earth has much more dense material than the crust of the Earth. The mountain is crustal material. Oh. So, so were they on the right trail? Did they understand that oh, yeah. when they were done with that experiment? Yeah, they, they kind of knew. And, and someone actually went back and redid the experiment on top of the mountain and going down the mountain. Oh, really? And we do that now with satellites. Satellites orbiting, we, we can use laser, laser range finding, and as they wiggle up and down because of gravity anomalies beneath them, we can actually build a gravity model of the entire Earth. <laughs> it's oh, so it's cool. It's really cool. So before 1774, what did people think was in the center of the Earth? Did they think it was liquid, hot lava stuff? I, I don't know if they even thought. 
Hmm. Even in the 1800s, you know, Jules Verne's writing, you know, Journey to the Center of the Earth. There's dinosaurs He's picturing and dirt all the way down. Yeah, in cave, yeah. Yeah, n- no, it can't be true. But this is, the reason this is important. You think this is so esoteric. Oh, come on, Joe and Rob, what are you talking about? Who cares? Well, we would have no space travel if they had not figured this out. Oh. Because, yeah, sure, you can still build the Empire State Building using weight. You don't need mass. But you can't build a spaceship without knowing mass and gravity. What Newton gave us was the law of gravity. Force, the force of gravity, equals a ratio. The two masses multiplied to, by each other. So bigger mass, more gravity. Mm-hmm. Divided by how far apart they are. Okay. Times the gravitational constant, G. <laughs> yes. And he didn't know what G was. Even in 1774, they still didn't know what G was. We had to wait for a couple more years for another famous experiment to actually figure out what the gravitational constant was. So imagine that you've got something that weighs, I don't know, let's say there's a, it weighs one kilogram Mm -hmm. and it's out in outer space. And there's something else that weighs one kilogram out in outer space and they're one meter apart. Well, the force of gravity is one times one divided by one squared. Yeah. It's one gravity unit. Yeah, that's a pretty mathematical, easy mathematical equation. But we still don't know what the force is. Mm -hmm. What, you know, what is that force that's sucking them together? We don't know. It's one gravity unit. This is what this experiment was able to figure out, what that G meant. But because the, um, the force decays with distance, if you now separate them by two meters, the force is not one half of a gravity unit. It's actually one fourth of a gravity unit because the masses times each other divided by the distance squared. So if you double the distance, the force goes down by four. This also applies to other mathematical issues. Like I remember when learning lighting for video production. Oh, yeah you're getting your, what is it? Uh, three point lighting structure. And the closer you get, the brightness increases mathematically much, much more for every inch you move forward. It moves up 1%. It's like, no, no, it moves up four times because faster. When you're talking about a light field, you're talking about a sphere of light, Yeah, which is a two dimensional object. Right. And so it has length and width. There's a square in there. And as you get closer it goes up by the square. When you go farther away, it goes down by the square. Same right. thing with gravity. Yeah. It's a square of the distance. Okay. But we don't know what this G is. We don't know what this force of gravity is yet. And that's, it took another experiment, a brilliant, unbelievable, I can't believe this guy did this in 1798. So were the same people involved in this experiment from Scotland? Oh, uh, no. This is English people, but okay. totally different different people. This guy got the idea from somebody else who started it, and then he died. And this man would become famous. His name is Cavendish. Cavendish. The Cavendish Laboratory. Thank later you, Cavendish, on, for being pronounceable. Yes, thank you very much. But later on, the Cavendish Laboratory was incredibly important for the building of the atomic bomb. Oh, wow. Because okay, so this guy is somebody. This, well, 100 years, 200 years later, this laboratory is figuring out all the fundamental physics of the universe. Really cool stuff. Whoa. It all started when Cavendish. Cavendish built a thick wooden box in a shed. This does not sound like an impressive science experiment yet. Not yet. But in this wooden box, and he did that because he wanted the temperature to be very well controlled. A telescope on the hole pointing into the box? Pointing into the box. And a telescope was focused on a little teeny scale. He could actually measure things to 0.01 inch. That is That's, very, yeah, wow. I what, mean, how did he, In the what, 1700s, to get that, you can't see that with your eyeballs. How did he design the scale? I don't know. Shoot. 
I, I don't know. That's, but he, his accuracy level was 0.01 inches. Wow. Unbelievable. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, he didn't have a laser jet ink printer or something like that. I'm wondering nope. how did he do this? But okay. <laughs> I know, but man, the history of science, when we go back and look at what these old boys were doing. Shockers. It is, what they could do with and telescopes. And what he's about to do is going to shock everything. Telescopes on chimneys and telescopes in wooden boxes and sheds. That's right. To figure out the fundamental workings of how everything goes. Man. The universe is cool. And it took, I mean, Stone Age technology to figure it out. Yeah. Just people thinking through issues. And what he did was he took a couple of lead balls, two inches in diameter. Lead balls. Lead balls. He didn't want to use anything that could be static. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I was going to say lead ball is are pretty specific and used for some and heavy too. properties. He didn't want to use gold. It's too expensive. Nice, heavy something. Dense. Two inches in diameter. He put them on a stick, a six foot long stick, and hung that from a wire. Okay. All right. How, how tall was his shed? <laughs> I don't know. About five or ten feet. I don't remember. Yeah. But he hung it from a wire. And this is a torsion wire. He knew how much force it took to twist the wire. And then he had two other lead balls, which are 12 inches in diameter. So these are really heavy. And peering through his telescope at his little scale and a little lead ball, he'd turn the big lead balls until they got closer and closer and closer to the little balls. And all of a sudden, the little ball would move. <laughs> so he thought that this might happen before he did oh, this. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It was all, it was yeah. all conceptual. It was all, yeah. like, hey, this should work. We had something really dense. And we looked really carefully at it. Something, you know, floating in space, essentially, because it's hanging from this, this thin wire. Mm. It twisted the wire. Incredible. But anytime you twist something like that, it's going to go too far and bounce back, right? Oh, yeah. And it, it actually had a period of 20 minutes. That's how fast <clears throat> this is happening. And he stared at this thing wiggling back and forth over the period of 20 minutes. He says it wiggles this far and then it wiggles that far. Halfway in between, that's how much it's wiggling. This is how much force it would take to twist that wire that much. And he calculated G. <laughs> he knew how much force there was between that ball and the earth. He knew how much force there was between the two balls. You know, a lot of times in math, like, you know, Sally runs 15 miles and Joe runs six miles and da, 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 da. And you ask to find X. (laughs) If you know everything but X, you can put it all into a formula and you start canceling and dividing and and cross multiplying and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, what he had was the attraction between the two balls and the attraction between the ball and the earth. He knew... F, the force. He knew R, the distance. He knew the masses. And he did it, did it, did it, it. He figured out the G. And now we know what the gravitational constant is. And now we can fly spaceships to Mars. Wow, just because of Cavendish in 1798. 1790s, thinking eight. So did he have intent with this knowledge? Like, did he picture flight? Did he picture... What is, so now knowing this stuff, what did he use this knowledge for? Just scientific information, but trivia? So the thing the Cavendish experiment did, which was also really cool, he figured out that the Earth had to be heavier than granite, more dense, more massive. So it wasn't just liquid metal and rock, but it was also not granite at its core. Yeah, the Earth can't be made out of marshmallow fluff. <laughs> well, okay. Because he knew... Yeah 
how much gravitational force was between two lumps of lead. I think you know, and I know, and our listeners knew that Earth couldn't be made of marshmallow fluff, but now we Yeah, get but it. you couldn't just prove it until Ooh, this time. That's true. And so a lump of lead being pulled to the Earth with this much force, well, we know the size of the Earth. We know the volume of the Earth. And he said, oh, the only thing in this much volume that could produce that much gravity has to have at least the density of iron. And huh. that's how we know the Earth has an iron core. Wow. That is very specific. Yeah, not a lead core, awesome. not a gold even core. We, don't have, we haven't even observed it for ourselves at, with the naked eye. That's but we awesome. can deduce it through logic yeah, yeah, and yeah. measurement. It has to be that way. Planet Earth. What a it's, cool thing. Yeah. Planet of, it's not planet of steel, it's planet of iron. Yeah. yeah. Cool. That's the funny thing about science. It's just incremental. Yeah. It's one little discovery, one little bit of knowledge at a time, and it adds and adds and adds and adds, and all of a sudden we have smartphones. Yeah, yeah. That's just one <laughs> long series of accumulated knowledge from one person cackling in the corner, oh, I can take barium and react it with fluorine in an acid solution. Ha, 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 I made a crystal that you can use 500 years from now or 50 years from now in the Apple IIe it is pretty Something. crazy when I've looked into a few articles that talk about where do our smartphones come from? And they talk about these things being ored out of the planet Earth yeah. and how we have to be very careful with this very rare material and how it's processed. And only a handful of people know how to craft it. Yes. And then and, people and the worry. slavery involved in the child labor. And yeah, yeah, it's really sad. So then we worry about like, well, if there was a war that took out an operation where the, this sort of science yeah. was at play in a laboratory to fabricate this element used in smartphones, would we even have smartphones anymore? Hence... Um, the Americans in World War II trying to bomb the German ball bearing factories. Oh. If we had succeeded, we would have taken out their industrial capability to wage war. Wow. The raid on Schweinfurt was a disaster of epic proportions. We lost more men and more planes. Ugh. In the end, it wasn't worth it because they just took their factories that had been bombed and turned them on again within weeks. Or they took the, all the things and they distributed it through the city. So it wasn't a, a localized place anymore. But if it had worked it would have shaved years off of World War II mm. because the Germans being those engineers, all of their cool guns and things, they had lots and lots of ball bearings in their 88s. We didn't have nearly that much, you know, cool stuff in our things. Our yeah. stuff was, but they had lots of ball bearings to so take out the ball bearings to take out Germany. So same thing in modern times. There are critical infrastructure things that we got to worry about. Okay, so we know then we've got the iron at its core, and there's other materials that Earth is made up of, because we've got that granite. You know, Stone yeah. Mountain is still there. Yeah. So how do we figure out what the rest of the substance is made of? Can we do some kind of x-ray of planet Earth? You know, is there a way to know what all the material is and what percentage all the material is? You know, that, that's a really cool question. The answer is yes, we can. Really? But it's not an x-ray, it's a sonogram. <laughs> oh, 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 we have seismic monitoring stations all around the world. Oh, and when an earthquake okay. happens, mm -hmm. by tracking the different types of waves getting to these different places, you can figure out what they went through. The primary waves, primary the, the waves, the fastest waves that travel through the ground are the pressure waves, forward and call, backwards. Is like that the, what they're called, pressure waves, or are they? They're called primary waves. I really, call, I think of them as pressure waves. We were just watching a movie a superhero movie where the villain says we're going to measure alpha waves and i was wondering is that even real mm. and then 
but some, you know, when you you don't have, don't really fact check superhero films, but yeah. I was curious. Like I've, I don't hear about primary waves very it's, often. It's it's like if if I if you had a whole bunch of people in a row and everyone had their hands on everyone's shoulders, yeah, and you shoved the person in the back, oh, it's going to into the channels to the down front. to the front. Yeah, yeah, it's a pressure thing, okay. just like sound waves in air or in water or in the earth. There's also sideways movements, like a sinusoidal sort of a thing. <laughs> well, like a wave on the ocean, you know, up and down movement, back and forth movement. Mm-hmm. No, not back and forth. That, that'd be pressure. But left and right are up and down. Yeah. Like a, like, a, like a wave in the ocean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are the secondary waves. They're a little slower. They don't go through liquid. They don't go through liquid. No, they get just dissipated. So if you're underwater and you make a noise, noise goes really well in water. But if you flap your hands up and down. Right, yeah. That 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 wave doesn't it just dissipates quickly. Hmm. Like I couldn't be a hundred feet away from you and flap my hands up and down. You'd never feel any movement. If I had like a, a noisemaker underwater, Ooh. like a like a so yeah, sonar yeah. ping, you would absolutely hear it. It'd be clear as day. It's a pressure wave. So the fact that we can detect S waves <laughs> means so S waves are the, the secondary si- waves. Okay, yeah, the secondary the sinusoidal waves, okay. waves. That means they're not traveling through liquid. Therefore, the center of the Earth is not liquid. Oh, oh, it's gotcha. Okay. It's rock. Yeah. Okay, but also the speed that waves travel depends upon the density, the temperature, and things like that. And we can literally, no joke, we can image the inside of the Earth. Whoa. Using supercomputers to calculate all these seismic monitoring station data when an earthquake goes off. So have they basically done that? They, it's rudimentary still. Yeah, yeah. But it's called seismic tomography. Holy cow, that's amazing. The inside of the earth is not a mystery anymore. Whoa. I mean, there's still some mysterious things, but we can actually see it. I mean, earthquakes can literally go through the entire earth. An earthquake happens here in Atlanta. Yeah. Well, that's no good because opposite us is the Indian Ocean. But, but if, if there was something yeah, there, it would. If, if you had a seismic monitoring station that opposite sides of the Earth, a wave can go straight through. Not all waves, some types of waves, because you have the core of the Earth, which is different than the mantle, which is different than the crust. Oh, for, as far as materials, it's like layers to an onion. Yeah, but they also deflect. Deflect. Yeah, just like um, uh, if, if you've ever been on the shore of a lake. The shore of a lake. In a springtime, you can hear someone whisper a mile away. The yeah. sound bends down toward the ground and hugs the ground. And a finger snap, a fireplace, a, a, a car, you can hear from way far away because the, the sound diffracts and it hugs the ground. When the temperature is different, it doesn't do that. <laughs> oh, okay. Or like um, if you've ever seen um, a rocket go off, like a space shuttle or something like that. Yeah. If you're so far away, you cannot hear it. The sound does not get to you because it bends up away from the earth. Oh, okay. There's a sound shadow. If you're so far away, you'll never hear it. You can see it, but you can't hear it. Wow. So sound diffracts. Well, earthquake waves diffract as they travel through the different density material. So it kind of comes, it goes back up. It can, it can literally go down and, and bend all the way and come someplace up. It can appear somewhere else on the earth Whoa. by bending huh. or it can go around things. And so it's a complex sort of a mathematical thing, and you need supercomputers to image it. But we can take pictures of the inside of the Earth. Wow. And so we could map out the, the warp and woof of an earthquake 
and uh, the area that it covered and which way it traveled. Could we even understand the speed at which it traveled? The sound wave or the earth crust as it cracks? The speed at which the earthquake rumbled and kept going. The wave kept going. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because there's also surface waves. They're a little slower than the inside waves. And there's two types of surface waves, up and down and left and right. And it's just really cool. I mean, think about it. You have a surface, you can move either of two ways, and they travel at different speeds. So in general, why do earthquakes take place? I mean, and this might seem like a real duh question. Is it just because of faults, like something shifts, like something's settling and something slides down underground? Is that really what are the cause of most quakes? Yeah. Now there's, yeah. you know, shale oil drilling earthquakes that don't count. Oh, okay. But all the other earthquakes are pretty much caused by plates S- moving. Yeah. Because the surface of the earth, is, it's like a marshmallow. Wait a I thought we already established it. Earth yeah, is not yeah, no, no, marshmallows. No, the crust of it. Have you, ever, you, you, you know, you cook a marshmallow, right? You get that brown crust. Oh. Okay, you're but you can this pull the crust tasty. off, and there's all this goo on the inside, and you can cook it again. And then it usually catches on fire. And you, anyway, sorry, all those horrible <laughs> memories of burning marshmallows. Um, <laughs> but that crust on the surface, it's all wrinkly, and you can twist it, yeah. and move it. That's almost like the crust of the earth. It's movable. Okay. It's conformable. So it, if we had hands big enough to grapple it like a softball, we could actually slide a little slip. bit. Slip. Now, granted, it's it's solid rock. Yeah. But the crust does move with respect to what's underneath it. If as soon as you start doing that on something the size of the Earth, you're going to get some parts that move more than others, and then you have a fault. You have strike faults that that are going sideways or up and down. You have dip faults like off the the trench off of Japan, where one plate is diving underneath another. Mm. as these plates move, they, they're rubbing on each other and they're bending and, and pressure's building up. And then every once in a while, the pressure gets released by the rock just jolting and moving a lot. You, you know Greece, the island, the, the country of Greece? The yeah, I know what Greece is, Rob. <laughs> yeah, you cook your pork fat in it. No, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, sorry. Exactly. That's dumb, of course. <laughs> cook your pork, not your pork fat. Anyway, um, the country of Greece, the bottom part of it is a big isthmus. And Sparta's there, and Corinth is on the isthmus part. Well, there's a, a, a little narrow place, and then north of that is the rest of Greece, and it's the Gulf of Corinth. Well, on the south side of that, the land is rising. The, the beach and towns are on the you know, sea level, and there's a mountain chain that's literally popping up. And you can go to that mountain chain, and you can see grooves in the rocks. vertical grooves because every once in a while the earth will crack and this mountain Mm. will jump a foot or two and cause a massive earthquake and usually a tidal wave and lots of people die but you can see striations on the cliff face whoa that is amazing that's a cool type of fault so based on what we know about mapping out the core of the earth, can we know where all the faults are and can we say how dangerous they are and yes whether and no. or not they're unstable and about to cause a problem? Yes and no, but it has nothing to do with the core of the earth. Oh, okay. Uh, we know where most of the major faults are. We keep discovering new faults that are surprising. Hmm. We can see evidence of earthquakes, like, you know, the San Andreas... I've stayed at a person's house twice on CMI trips. His house is looking down at the San Andreas Fault. Oh. It's there. And you can see this line in the <laughs> Why dirt. doesn't he move? I mean, ah. I'm a little worried. Well, he, he said that earthquakes are worse the further away you are. What? I think that's just a wise tale. Anyway, lots of people live because it's California. You have to live somewhere. I guess. And so we know where. As far as you can from California is a good idea. <laughs> Politically and geologically. <laughs> 
Uh, but we know where all the major ones are, and we see evidence of old ones that looks like they don't move anymore. But there's tons of stuff we don't know. Yeah. And part of that is because of the deep time assumption. We, we don't know what drives plate tectonics. It makes no sense. The deep time assumption, what do you have? The conveyor belt model is, is the model that they have. But the Earth is a rock. I was going to say, the conveyor belt model does not sound very legit. But that's, that's the most common explanation that, that, that I hear. And then you th- have things like the islands of Hawaii. You got all these islands out in the middle of a plate. They're nowhere near a subduction zone. Yeah. And they make a huh. left turn. What? Really? The Emperor Seamount chain. Yeah. If you look at the Hawaiian Islands, underwater, there's other islands that go to the north. Uh-huh. They make an L shape. Wow. And it's a miss. What are they doing there? Yeah. And of course, you know, there's a, there's a hot plume under the... Un, well, where's that hot plume coming from? Yeah. There's a lot of total and tremendously huge mysteries. So Dr. John Baumgartner, friend of mine, a physicist, a, an unbelievable mathematician, he wrote a computer program. It's called Terra. He divided the on an upper 300 miles or so of Earth into 30 million little squares or cubes. And then he puts plates on it and he counts for the density of the rock and the temperature of the rock and the pressures and all these things. And he can set up in any way he wants. It's a plate tectonics modeling program. In fact, it's used by secular plate tectonics modeling scientists, even though it was written by a creationist. Because it's simply the most complex mathematical model the Earth's crust anyone's ever done. And he solves like 30 differential equations per time step or something like that. And but what he what he did was once he built this model, he said, okay, let's start plate tectonics. And he doesn't know how it starts, but he says, let's just start it. Let's start a plate moving. And as soon as plates move sideways, some of them have to dip down. That pressure of the dipping changes the viscosity of the rocks. And so all of a sudden, this falling plate margin is falling through rock that's much less dense than it used to be. Oh. And according to the physics, plates will move at feet per hour. Not the rate your fingernails grow, but they move fast. Huh. Now, that makes no sense. It can't be true, except the physics is telling us it could be true. And the seismic tomography is telling us it could be true also. That is so weird. Wow. What we have found using imaging of the inside of the Earth are gigantic slabs of cold crustal rocks. Now, cold is in, there are still a few hundred degrees cooler than the mantle rocks around them, but they're at the base of the mantle. Yeah. And sometimes they're stacked up on top of each other. Wait a minute. If plate tectonics, secular, old earth, long time frame idea is true, these plates would melt way before they get to any depth under the mantle. They'd melt as they're going down. There's no way they could fall to the base of the mantle and stack up on top of each other. Okay. Unless huh. they got there really quickly. Wow. So he's got a really cool mathematical model that deals with the inside of the earth using physics. Wow. That is amazing. So here's an interesting idea for a little science project. I could see a company trying to commercialize this as a product um, but I, you know, I don't collect a lot, but I d- do collect a few things. And one thing that I think would be a brilliant novelty for something like the science shop gift shop at a museum would be a ball that is like a scale model of planet earth okay. that is essentially made up of all the rock substances that we know planet earth is, but at scale 
this ball is the material of planet Earth. Can you? Could that be done? Does that have plutonium in it? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we'd have to not include some things. Oh um, man, yeah, you could you could have an iron center, yeah. but the crust would be so thin. That oh, okay, so the thin is it's the crust is relatively thin. Yeah, really thin. In hmm. fact, I, I've heard the Earth would be smoother than a cue ball. What now? Okay, so if we even had a cue ball chains, sized version of planet Earth. Yeah, even with mountain chains, I've heard the Earth would be smoother than a cue ball. I don't know if that's true. You know, national pool cue ball is pretty smooth. Yeah, and they've got all these regulations of this is how small the, huh. the cue ball has, or how smooth the cue ball has to be. They actually yeah. have a measurement of that somehow. I'm not sure. And yet, from outer space, you don't see mountains. No, it's true. When you look at the horizon, you know, the circle of the Earth, you don't it see bumps on like that. It just looks like a circle. It, yeah, it's a circle. And granted, that's because the atmosphere. Plus, the oceans are pretty big and they are pretty flat. Yes. Not totally flat, though. No. Because the Pacific Ocean is higher than the Atlantic Ocean. That's interestingly weird. <laughs> it just, Earth, It's a couple weird. of feet different. <laughs> but we also love you. We love you because you're weird. Well, that's where we're going to do it for this episode. Awesome discussion. And, you know, I didn't think that we were going to necessarily just talk about the inner part of planet Earth. But I think a lot more time is devoted to the stuff on the surface, which we'll get yeah. to, which we've already gotten to and we're going to get to again. And, and again. I spend my life studying stuff on the surface. Therefore, every once in a while, I want to diverge yeah. into something I knew little about. You know, kind of like you were saying earlier, Rob, the thing about measuring the weight of the Earth that our brains can't even comprehend it. A lot of this information about what is in planet Earth is like that. It's hard yeah. to grapple with. Hard to grasp. <laughs> but that, that's sort of like learning about the solar system and Jupiter and it's a gas giant planet. And it's tremendously enormous and constantly covered in terrible storms. Like our, our mind just cannot grasp that. So can we grasp the Earth? See, that's the thing. I think that, you know, as we go about our business, we're, lo- we're browsing Facebook and Twitter, checking our email today, trying to get some work done on our computer at home for Earth Day. And then we we're reminded of Earth Day. It is really hard to think about just how deep and complicated and, and cool, cool, fascinating planet Earth really is. Yeah. We'll leave you with that. I hope you've enjoyed this deeper dive into planet Earth. Thanks so much for joining us on our quest to the center of the earth. If you want to dig deeper into this episode's topics, you can find links to articles and the like in the show notes. We'll have things like anything the Dr. Bob Baumgartner, links related to Baumgartner's study will be in the show notes as well for that kind of thing and more. You'll find those show notes uh, to this episode on our website. So you can hop over to nightowl.fm slash equinox slash 10. And if you would like us to discuss a science topic that you have in mind, you have a question that was raised by this episode, tweet it to us at podcast equinox and we'll get your idea into the queue. And you can find both Rob and I as well on Twitter and Facebook, but you know, you can find Rob there. He is at Bible Genetics and mine is at JCS Darnell. And if you're not already watching Rob's videos, you can find those are biblical genetics on YouTube and Facebook. He's addressing a lot of DNA and genes topics, human genome things, mutations, so that you can go deeper into those topics as well. So until next time, goodbye, Rob. Goodbye, Joe. And you have been listening to Equinox. Equinox.